Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. Now, uh, if, you've, if you've been here uh, over the last what is it, five or six weeks now, we've been in a series that we've been calling From Death to Life, From Death to Life. And the reason why is through the Easter season, we've been studying, and this is a note-taker, Bible student sort of series, so get your pen out, ready to burn it up, y'all. We've been studying Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection back to life. Really, it's felt like a kind of a college class at a Bible school, if, if you will, because my hope has been at like a theological level, introductory level, if we put Jesus' best friends here on stage, the disciples, the folks who wrote scripture, microphone in their mouth and said, hey, what, sum it up in a few principles. What does the cross mean? What does the empty tomb mean? Then what they say next is what we've been trying to get after. Now, if you were here for the first three weeks of the series, uh, then you know that we focused on cross theology, and we talked about the cross, and we had Easter, great celebration, and last week, we started a three-week journey into resurrection theology. Um, and again, let me just clarify, disclaimer, three weeks ain't enough, I've said this every week, it ain't enough to cover the cross, it ain't enough to cover all the beauties of the empty tomb, but we're trying, we gotta try anyways. We have to, because this is the core essential of our faith. So last week, we began our resurrection study off with this big point, okay? For those of you who didn't see it, you need to go back and check it out. Here's the big point. The resurrection was understood first, first, big point, as a vindication of Jesus. Keyword there being first. And by first, I mean like chronologically first. This was the knee-jerk reflex reaction of the disciples when they saw the tomb empty when they saw a risen Jesus standing before them sharing some fish for dinner first the thing they came that came into their mind was well he is the savior and the Lord after all because good Friday wasn't good until resurrection Sunday right but then all of a sudden they start calling good Friday so let me say it to you like this the resurrection cast a retrospective light backwards validating Jesus's cross from defeat to victory, validating Jesus' claims from loser to the Lord of all, and validating Jesus' place, not dead in a tomb, but alive on the throne of our hearts. He is the resurrection and the life. This is how the cross literally vindicated Jesus. Now, that was point number one. You guys were here last week, Um, important stuff. Staying on that chronological note, I wanna uh, uh, work, work through with you today what I believe to be the second thing like literally chronologically, the second thing that sort of dawned upon Jesus's followers when they realized he was risen from the dead. So second, this is what I believe. First, the cross was a vindication of Jesus. But second, the resurrection was understood as a responsibility of ours. Not only was the resurrection seen as a vindication of Jesus, but immediately after that, the disciples realized we now have a job to do. Are you with me? So this is how the conversation may have played out, okay? Uh, first, Jesus appears from the, the dead, risen. The disciples say, you're a ghost. Jesus, no. Disciples say, you're alive? Jesus, yep. Disciple one says, well, this changes everything. 
Disciple two says, we gotta go tell people about this. It's a big deal. And disciple number three says, we've got work to do. And Jesus is like, finally, you guys are getting it. Golf clap. And so go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always till the end of the age. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Jesus, out. Ascends. That's, that's how it goes. Now, okay, we're in week, what is this? Week two of three weeks on resurrection. We're only doing three weeks. And you may notice we haven't got to any of the heaven stuff yet, have we? Normally when people talk about resurrection, they're like, and so Jesus is risen. So that means we get to go to heaven someday and we'll be risen as well. And that's important. We'll get there next week, but I truly believe these were not the first concerns or the first revelations, if you will, upon Jesus being risen from the dead. And why would I say that? Well, because Jesus himself says this. So what I wanna show you today is how Jesus interpreted the resurrection for his followers. And here's what I think you'll find. Next slide here. Before they celebrated resurrection as a future heavenly promise, they embraced it as a present earthly responsibility. And that's because Jesus said so. Jesus did. Now, over the next few minutes, I'm gonna walk you through all four gospel accounts, all four of them. We can't read every verse of them, but we're gonna take special interest in what Jesus actually says after he's risen from the dead to his disciples. I'm gonna walk you through. If you don't like the Bible, you are going to hate this church And also, you're going to hate the next like five to 10 minutes because we're going to read lots of scripture, all right? And I want to try to show you from the mouth of Jesus himself how he interprets the resurrection for uh, for his followers. So let's start off with Luke Acts, okay? This is the first gospel account and we'll just make our way through, all right? Luke Acts first. See that hand in the back? Go ahead real quick. Tyler, what's Luke Acts? That's two books, not one. Well, technically you're right. They kind of slipped John in between Luke and Acts, but they shouldn't have. Did you know that Luke and Acts are actually written by the same author and to the same audience? So really a better way to look at them is it's one book, two volumes. Volume one covers Jesus's birth to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Volume two overlaps in resurrection and ascension and takes us to the birth of the early church. One book, two volumes. I wanna show you how both of them talk about resurrection because it's similar. These are the words of Jesus. Luke 24, very end of Luke's gospel. Jesus said to the disciples, He says, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And you are witnesses of these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. Then he ascends. So real quick recap, what what does Luke get at here? What does Jesus get at in Luke here with this commission? It's kind of threefold. He says, here's what I want you to do. You got a job to do, here's what I want you to do. Wait for the spirit, then bear witness, and bear witness for me where? Where does he say, did you see it? Where? I dare you to talk in church or move or act like you're excited to hear. Everywhere, all the nations. He says, bear witness everywhere. Okay, now let's go to Acts. Okay, Acts 1.8. Same author here, and it sounds hmm, eerily similar. Jesus said to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, there's spirit, and you will be my witnesses, there's witness, telling people about me where? Yeah, that would be everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then he ascends. So you can kind of see what he's getting at here in the Luke Acts. 
He's saying, here's my commission to you. You got a job to do. Go bear witness for me. Holy Spirit's going to help. All right, what about Mark? Mark is an interesting one. I believe we've actually lost the ending of Mark. All of the most ancient manuscripts that we have of Mark end at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. So we don't actually have Jesus saying much of anything as the risen Jesus. But what we do have in Mark chapter 16 is we have an angelic messenger come and speak to the women in the tomb. And that gives us all that we need. Mark 16, verse five, it says, when the women entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. Uh, But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and he isn't here. To which they're like, duh, we've gathered that much at this point. Tell us more, angel boy. And uh, he says, he's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, because Peter's feeling pretty bad right now after the denials thing. I mean, tell Peter he's still in the group and that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you before he died. He told him before he died. Well, yeah, see Mark 14, 27 through 28. Now, again, we don't necessarily know what happens in Galilee according to Mark. But what we do know is the angel shows up to the women. He says, you got a job to do. Gather the gang, go to Galilee. Jesus will meet you there. Now, fortunately for us, Matthew, Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew picks up for us what actually happens in Galilee. Matthew 28, verse 16, last words of Jesus in Matthew, last words of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 16, it says, then the 11 disciples left for where? Oh, how convenient. How'd they know to go there? Well, Mark 16. Okay, but anyways, they go to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some of them still doubted, which is like, what else do you need to see? He's risen from, anyway. So Jesus comes in and tells his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hard stop, Gospel of Matthew, over. Any sense? Now, what's, okay, what's the risen Jesus say to the disciples here? He says, look, guys, I'm risen from the dead. I'm about to leave, and you have a job to do. In fact, we, we call Matthew 28, 16 through 20-something in, in the church, don't we? What's this, what's this passage called? Anybody know? The Great Commission, and I think that's a bad name. Because it's not the definite article, Great Commission. It's a Great Commission. We've got a Great Commission in Luke. We just looked at it. Got a Great Commission in Acts. Just looked at it. Got a Great Commission here in Matthew. Just looked at it. All of them are important, right? And we also have a really Great Commission in John. Now, in John chapter 21, it's the most interesting one of all. John's unique. He's like the artist of the family, right? So he kind of does his own thing. In John 21, he doesn't give us this sort of overarching commission to all the disciples we actually see Jesus meet one-on-one with one of the disciples. And he forgives, ministers to, and commissions. Anybody? Who? Peter. Peter the denier. There were two betrayers at the cross, right? There's Judas who hands Jesus over, and there's Peter who denies him three times. And Peter is restored in this moment and commissioned, and I believe it serves as a model for all of us in seeking forgiveness from Jesus and seeking purpose for our lives. John chapter 21, verse 15, very end of John's gospel, y'all. After Jesus, the risen Jesus, or excuse me, after breakfast, the risen Jesus uh, asked Simon Peter, first time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. 
Jesus repeated the question second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Third time he asked him. Interesting. He asks him three times. Wonder why. Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked this question a third time. He said, Lord, do you know everything? You know I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself, went wherever you wanted to go, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to let Peter know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told Peter, follow me, follow me. Now, quick recap there. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus then gives Peter three opportunities to retract this denial. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then Jesus commissions Peter three times to go feed the sheep and take care of the sheep. Oh, how beautiful this commission is, right? He goes from Peter to the denier to Peter the shepherd. And then Jesus finishes up by saying, hey, and like me, I want you to carry your cross because you're going to someday and follow. The constant refrain throughout the gospels for all the disciples, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, he tells Peter. Which, by the way, is a little bit interesting. You ever find that interesting? Peter can't follow him anymore, at least, because where's Jesus about to go? He's about to ascend to his throne in heaven, but that's the point. The point is not for Peter to follow him quickly into heaven. That's not what's gonna happen. The point is for Peter to follow him anyways while he's still here on earth. So can I review for you? This is is it, y'all. This is how Jesus interprets the resurrection for his disciples. I want you to gather this. The resurrection was understood second as a responsibility of ours. Before they celebrated resurrection as a future heavenly promise, they embraced it as a present earthly responsibility. They had a job to do. And you know why they embraced it that way? Because Jesus said so. And you just do what the uh, resurrected guy says, right? Like we said last week, if your leader predicts his death and resurrection, you know what you do? You get him help because that's weird. But then if he pulls it off, do you know what you do? whatever he says. This is their logic. And so they go on with it. Now, now, all of you people who just tuned out for the Bible study, come on back, elbow your husband. Come on back, get him off Twitter, the whatever. You know, come on back. You know, for those of you browsing on Amazon, come on back, come back to me here. Okay, we're done with that. And I wanna get practical now. I wanna get super practical. And I wanna talk about what this means on the ground for us. So, okay, we've seen what Jesus says. We've got a job to do. Question number one, Tyler, what's the job? What's the job then? What's the job? Well, quick review. Here are the things Jesus actually says in the gospel accounts to his disciples. Now, as you kind of look at these, you'll recognize many of them. We just read all of them. And, um, and what I would encourage you to do in trying to interpret these is not to hyper-focus on any one of them, but try to capture the big picture. In fact, here's a tool for you. What I would suggest for you is rather than focusing on any one of these commissions, If you wanna know how Jesus' disciples understood the resurrection mandate, just look at what they did next. Jesus gives them the mandate, he ascends to heaven, then what do they do? Well, we actually know, we have the story of that. In the first few chapters of Acts, they build a church, they build a kingdom community. And I believe that there are four big principles that you can see uh, inside their community uh, there there at the very beginning. First, here's the first thing they did, they led others to Jesus. 
They talked about the risen Jesus a lot. You see this in Peter's first sermon. He's like, y'all killed him, God raised him, we all better repent. He's risen from the dead after all. Second, they built a tight-knit community around truth, worship, and fellowship. Truth, worship, and fellowship. In fact, I would suggest to you that these passages that we focus in on so much at the end of Acts chapter two, that's what they're actually about, building a community. We like to hyper-focus on the details and think, well, it's about prayer and the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the Lord's you know, supper and we should do all these things and systematize them into our churches. And there's nothing wrong with focusing in on those, but the bigger picture, if you read the whole thing, is that they did them all together. It's not necessarily about the details as it is about the context in which they did it all. Right? Together, together, in the community. They gathered in people's homes. They met daily in the temple. The point is, is that they were constantly together. Number three, they cared for each other's needs. Love this passage here, because if you go one, two, three, four lines down, it says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. Pause. Should we just break from this sermon right now and preach on that for a second? Luke's speaking in absolutes here, by the way. He says all of them. Could you imagine a church where all the people in the United States of America today, could you imagine the countercultural witness a church could have if all the people in that church family were actually united in heart and mind? And, back to the verse, and they felt that what they owned was not their own and they just shared everything they had with one another. And because of that, back to the verse, there were no needy people among them? Is that not incredible? Could you imagine if 10% of a church would do this? What sort of countercultural witness it would be? Okay, I'm harping on this too long. Fourth, fourth, last. They, last, they established a favorable reputation. This is what you see in those early verses. They established a favorable reputation. And I don't even know if they were necessarily trying to do that so much as it was just a byproduct of the kind of community that they were. But one, two, three, four, this is what we see in the church powerful stuff. This is the resurrection mandate lived out. Now, let me explain it to you like I did on, on Easter, okay? Because um, this will make things even more practical. As Christians, you know we believe in heaven in three phases, right? According to the scriptures, there are three phases of heaven. Three? I don't know about that, Tyler. What are you preaching? Okay, well, first there's phase, phase two, so one that's most common to us. That's where we believe when we die, um, you know, our, our physical bodies are buried in the ground, but in this sort of disembodied state, our spirit, soul, whatever, goes, and according to scripture, to be with Jesus in a restful paradise. Key word there is to be with Jesus, though, which I'm super excited about, and that's where we stay in phase two until phase three when Jesus comes back. And the dead are resurrected, the living are resurrected as well. In fact, the entire created cosmos, which has been cursed by sin, is all resurrected. Revelation 21 tells us there's no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And we live together in perfect love in the full presence of God into eternal glory. Can't wait for that one, right? That's phase three. What about phase one, though? Well, according to scriptures, phase one of heaven has already begun. Resurrection has already begun with the empty tomb of Jesus. Phase one is now. Phase one is as above, so below. Phase one is that constant refrain you prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Did you guys, when you were playing sports when you grew up, did you guys say the Lord's Prayer like before all the games or all the practices? You remember this? 
You weren't even paying attention. It was like, whose father? I remember our, our team got so good at it, we could say it in like seven seconds. Okay, let's play, right? Like, but, but there's this amazing refrain right in the middle of it where we pray, and this is a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's phase one. This is the phase that we're living into right now. We got a job to do, y'all. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, let me give you a really big theological word that will will sum this up well for you. Uh, Repeat after me. Uh, Realized eschatology. Very, very good. Okay, if you are in a Bible study with people who are not a part of our church, this is what I want you to do this week. I want you to go and be like, hey, what do you guys think about realized eschatology? Because, you know, in my church, we were talking about it this week and just totally played off like it's not a big deal, okay? Because they'll be impressed, right? Or maybe you're not impressed. Maybe this is why you, you don't like our church. It's because we talk about things like realized eschatology. But anyways, re- repeat after me again. Realized eschatology. This is the scholarly term for our on-the-job mindset right now. Here's the definition for it. We move the world toward heaven. That's what we do. That's the job. We believe resurrection life has begun with Jesus' resurrection, but we believe it is not done until ours. We're living between the two comings. We're living between the two resurrections. So what do we do as we wait? We don't wait. We anticipate. We literally take the lasso, throw it into the future, and pull heaven into the present. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the on-the-job mentality. Realized eschatology. That's what we practice. Now, let me give you a question. And this will help you work this out daily in your life. A great question um, to constantly ask yourself is this. Is this what heaven will be like? Or is this how people will act in heaven? Or will this be a reality allowed to exist in heaven? Ask yourself that constantly. Because that'll help you get at what you should be doing. How you should be living in the present. Since you're pulling heaven into the present. Or pushing the earth towards heaven. If it's not in heaven then we should stop it. We should resist it, right? But if it is in heaven, if it is a reality, we should do everything we can to try to establish it. Will there be hungry children in heaven? Well, no. Will there be lonely neighbors in heaven? No. Will there be FedEx shootings or... 13-year-olds laying dead in the street? No. Will there be pandemics or, or even hospitals? Well, no. So, so we should be working to, to heal people, to care for the sick in the present, right? Will there be one lost soul, one person in heaven who does not know about the love of Jesus? The answer to that is no. So we should be doing everything we can right now to make sure there's not one. There's not one person that doesn't know about the love of Jesus. Do you see? This is how it works. We push the world towards heaven to the very best of our ability. Let me show you another practical tool here that really helped me wrap my mind around what our role is. Uh, you can go ahead and throw the, the Engel scale up there. Or this is my adaptation of it. It's my, my, Tyler's adaptation of the Engel scale of evangelism. For those of you online watching, I'm gonna have them hold that on the screen for 
a little bit of an extended period so you can kind of check it out. What I want you guys to know uh, here is, is I want you to notice how it moves from closed off to God at the bottom all the way up to whole life surrender. Like it's, it's basically a scale of spiritual maturity all the way up to whole life surrender at the top. That first line uh, between nine and 10 is, is what I would call the line of salvation. That last line at the top is the line to eternal glory, whether that's your death or Jesus' second coming or both, it doesn't matter. And our goal and our love for God and our love for others should be to move ourselves and to move others up the scale. That's the goal. One inch at a time, let's just inch, let's inch the world up. Because the closer we get to the top of the scale, the closer we get to heaven. You see? That's the goal. Now, one quick observation about this scale. As you'll see the line there, nine and 10, I would suggest to you that churches like ours for quite some time now have been really good at turning like sevens into eights into nines and into tens. We've been really good at the whole salvation thing, getting people across the salvation line. Have you noticed? This is why uh, measuring butts and baptisms is such a big deal. This is why we have such lopsided churches today that are great at getting people into the baptistry waters, that are great at gathering really, really big cr crowds, but aren't very great at the top of the scale and bottom of the scale work. They're not very great at making really whole life sold out followers of Jesus and they're not that great at reaching truly lost people who could care less. And by the way, there are more and more people in our culture today who are truly lost and could care less. They don't have some sort of Christian conscience that they inherited from their family or whatever it may be. So we're not dealing all the time with sixes and sevens. A lot of times we're dealing with ones, twos, and threes. For the record, if God has placed your life to where you're constantly rubbing shoulders with the ones, twos, and threes, and that's your ministry, just to turn twos into threes and threes into fours. Or if God has placed your life where you're constantly dealing with like tens and turning them into 11s, 12s, 13s, 14s, and beyond, like you're in vocational ministry of some sort, I want you to know that your life uh, calling and the work that you're doing is just as important. It's just as important because we need the whole scale, right? We need the whole scale. Let me make another observation about this scale. The scale isn't actually about evangelism. I think they got it wrong when they called it the scale of evangelism. It's not. It's actually about building a heaven community. Building the kingdom. It's about community formation, if you will. Which, by the way, you need evangelism for that. You need people initiated into the family. But that's only one part of the process. It takes more than just evangelism to, to accomplish this. So um, let me explain to you like this. In, in the Hebrew scriptures in, in the Old Testament, uh, there's this word that the scriptures use to talk about God's creation intent for the world. Do, do you know what he calls it? Shalom. We're supposed to exist in shalom. Do, do you know what shalom means, English translation? Peace, yeah, it means, it means peace. But it don't just mean like peace, man, we should all get along. No, it's, it's bigger than that. It's actually physical, emotional, spiritual, and social harmony across the board. It's like a holistic piece. And all of these, by the way, are not individual strands, but they are tied together into one. One tapestry, if you will. They're connected. So, for example, if a kid's hungry, that's a physical problem. That's a lack of physical harmony, but it will have emotional, spiritual, and physical effects, right? If there's an unjust law in place, that's a social problem, but it'll have physical, emotional, 
spiritual impacts, right? It's a tapestry tied together. When one strand gets unraveled, the whole cloth begins to unravel, which is why Paul picks up this idea of shalom, if you will, in the New Testament, when he calls us to be, 2 Corinthians 5, reconcilers. So I want you to reconcile the world. I want you to reconcile people back to God because this is not how it was intended to be. So back to our scale again. Can you put the scale up one more time? This is why here at the Love the Ville Church, we want to see people progressing to 13 and into the 14th. We want to see you as agents of shalom and reconciliation. We want to see you kingdom building. We want to see whole life surrender. And the interesting thing is, is that, again, when you live in that area, you don't even have to work that hard on evangelism. Some of the most evangelistic things you can do for people who are in like the one or the two is to be a Love the Ville Church like we are because it opens them up to the power and the possibility of a loving God. This is why we believe what we do is so important. Are you with me? Even more practical for you, because I want to drive this home here. You're sitting in the room right now. You're like, I work 55, 60 hours a week. I got three kids. Pretty average for somebody who lives in this part of town. Okay. Um, what does this mean for me, Tyler? Here's what it doesn't mean. You don't have to leave your job. You don't have to pick kids up and move to the developing world and become a missionary. You don't have to start a nonprofit. You don't have to become a pastor at Northeast Christian Church. You might, good for you, go for it. That might be what God calls you, but you don't have to. You know what you really need to do? What you need to do is to take a missional consciousness if you want, and see what God has already given you as your mission field. Don't get a new job, go to work, Take Jesus' love with you and decide every environment you walk into, every employee you rub shoulders with, every person you come face to face with, you're gonna nudge them towards heaven. And you'll be doing your job. Don't you don't have to move your kids to, to you know, the, the developing world. Just every time you walk into home, decide that you're gonna nudge your home toward heaven with the way that, that you lead and love. Unleash Jesus' love, home, workplace, city, church, every day, everybody, everywhere, be a beacon of that. You with me? This is what we do here. Okay, okay. That's the, that's the job, y'all. Jo what's the job? Our job is to move people towards heaven. Now, here's the deal. There's a problem, though. There's a big problem. And the problem is sitting around us right now. <laughs> the problem is us. Let me tell you, we have to approach our mission as a church with appropriate level of optimism and pessimism. We can be optimistic because we've seen the church do great things. We've seen heaven in the church. You've, you've experienced it in your own life. But we also have to approach it with an appropriate level of pessimism because we are all sinners. About, take, takes about two minutes, if you will, for you to run into some sin in a Christian's life. Probably about five minutes watching the news for something else to hit the news cycle. We've been a mess. We've always been a mess. Since the beginning, we've been a mess. There's always been Ananias and Sapphira lying about their money. There's always been the church of James, which makes the poor folks sit in the back. There's always been the church in Corinth that's got all sorts of jacked up dysfunction going on with sexual immorality and divisiveness. We've got false teachers in the beginning profiting off the scriptures. We have guys like Peter who have to get smacked around by Paul at the church in Galatia, Galatia for literally being an ethnic supremacist. Literally, go read Galatians 1 and 2. He won't eat with Gentile people. And Paul's like, what are you doing? So this has been around since the start. The church has always been a mess. We're still a mess. But here's what I think. I feel like we're more of a mess today than any time in my life. It's a mess right now. Now, I don't just say that from personal experience. I say that from 
from statistics. Uh, recently, Gallup released a uh, study that they did last year. Here are some of the interesting findings that shocked Christian Twitter, trust me. In 2020, they discovered that 47% of U.S. adults, only 47%, this is the lowest ever recorded number, only 47% of U.S. adults would say that they belong to any sort of house of worship at all. That's down over 20 points from the turn of the century. Younger people are far more likely to claim no religious preference than older generations. And uh, next slide here, you can see the trend line if you're interested. Now, there's a lot I could say about that, and I will in just a moment, but, but I, I want to show you what Dr. Russell Moore had to say about it this week in a, an article that he posted on, online. Dr. Moore, for those of you who don't know, is a conservative uh, ethicist and theologian. He's actually the president of the public policy arm for the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC. He, it's called the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. My point is, is that he checks all the boxes, if you will. Like he is this traditional, conservative, middle-aged white guy who's a part of the SBC. And yet he's not afraid to speak the last 10%. This is what he wrote in his article. He says, we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? And what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. The church will be reborn in every generation, he says. As the prophet Jeremiah warned Jerusalem, don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all the other new gods of yours and then come here and stand before me and my temple and say, I'm safe, I'm safe, we're safe here, only to go right back out and do those evils? The church will survive, even here in America, more rights. But along the way, a lot of 15-year-olds will be hurt. A lot of them will conclude that the gospel is just one more aspect of political theater or outrage culture or institutional self-perpetuation or worse. They'll be wrong, of course, but as Jesus put it, woe to the person through whom the stumbling block comes. We're losing a generation, not because they're secularists, but because they believe we are. <laughs> now, dang, man. That's only part of the article. The reason why I read the excerpt to you is because when I read the whole thing this week, it resonated with me at a deep level. I'm a millennial. I have lots of young friends. And when I think about my friends, it is a fact. Over half of them do not belong to a church today, even though just about all of them did as we grew up. And, I, and this may offend you. That's okay. But I want to share with you right now real conversations I've had literally in the last couple years with many of my friends who have left the church, these are the reasons why they left. I feel homeless. Churches on the right abuse the scripture. Churches on the left don't respect it. I believe in Jesus. But the church I grew up in is more about Trump and owning the libs today than Jesus. So I'm out. It's the Christians, 
who fight and advocate and call out legislative injustice toward the unborn, which is good, but then they can't bring themselves to acknowledge systemic racism. I thought all lives mattered. It's the Christians who talk about loving neighbor and enemy, but then all they do on social is snark at and hate on their enemies. It's the pastors clawing for bigger churches, more campuses, book deals, celebrity status, then justifying it all under reaching people for Jesus. That dude's shoes are 3,000 bucks. Heard this one recently. Uh, Don't you think there's something better to spend $15 million on than another mega building Disney theater campus down the street from like three other healthy churches? It's the Christian leaders getting exposed for moral failures. It's the priests and pastors that were abusers and predators predators that the church protected rather than protecting the victims. It's the Sunday school teacher I used to have who I saw sharing conspiracy theories on social media, but then a week later on Easter expecting folks to believe her when she said Jesus rose from the dead. Real conversations. And I'm sorry if they offend you or if you think they lack nuance or, or are an unfair caricature but they are a reality, I promise you. And it is a reality that we must reckon with, church. There's a problem, we're the problem. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Here, here would be my advice. How do we solve this problem? Let's circle back to point number one. Do your job. Let's renew our focus on the job. Let's just move the world. Toward heaven. And here's an idea. Let's start first by looking in the mirror and moving the church toward heaven as well. I'm going to close by reading you a story and then we'll take communion and sing a song. It's a story my friend Lee shared with me that I think gets at the heart of what our job is. Recently, he took a, his second company public and he was at a celebration for it. This is what he wrote. He said, going public was an incredible experience for me in New York. Highly organized, great celebration. Been praying hard for God's will through this whole thing. We had our celebration dinner, and the key leaders, me included, got a chance to share some things. What the IPO meant to us personally. So I got up and shared a few things. And I closed my comments with this story. This is my second IPO. And on the first, I saw a lot of people I work with become multimillionaires overnight. They became extremely wealthy. There were new cars, new vacations, homes, new stuff. But I also saw people become poor in many ways. Relationships suffered. Divorces happened. Kids were forgotten. I saw more lonely people and more depressed people. I then shared how I got involved with a Christian nonprofit, and I traveled to Russia, Cuba, and Guatemala. I explained how we plant feeding centers in these extremely poor places and I said, one day I was at a feeding center in a small village and I saw this one girl playing soccer with like 20 other boys. She was fierce and tough and dominating. You could tell she had fight. She had to fight for everything in her life. She was in the seventh grade. The game ended and she came over to where I was. And since I'd coached soccer for years, I decided to show her some new moves. I couldn't communicate with her. She spoke only Spanish, but we played soccer for 30 minutes until finally the interpreter came over and we could communicate. Found out she lived in a small hut in the village with dirt floors. Her dad had only made it through kindergarten. Her mom had only made it through the second grade and the family only earned collectively a couple dollars a month. I asked her what she wanted to do with her life and she told me she wanted to be a lawyer, but there was no way for her to accomplish that. She couldn't afford school. I asked how much school was, and she said, private university costs $60 a month, 
and public university cost $5 a month for their hat. <laughs> How about that? I got to share my faith in Jesus with her, and I told the interpreter to tell her that if she worked hard in school, like I saw her on the soccer field, I'd pay for her college. I didn't share this with the company, but I asked Katie if she wanted a coach in her life like I had just coached her in soccer, and she said yes, and ultimately, she gave her life to Christ and stayed connected to the Christian leaders at our feeding center. Now, fast forward several years to today, and this week, I got a message from her telling me she's in university, she's doing very well studying engineering, and she said that God is multiplying our generosity for her in many ways. I'm so thankful for the God prompt. At the IPO party, this is how I concluded. I told my coworkers that I shared with them this with them, not for them to think differently about me, but for them to find their Katie. I want each of them to experience that. I want them to find their Katie and that will help them keep their lives from getting poor in so many areas. And I can't think of a better way to end this message on our resurrection mandate. So church, my encouragement to you would be simple. Find your Katie in the home, workplace, city, church, around the world, wherever, wherever you are. Find your Katie. Unleash Jesus' love with all you got. Move this world toward heaven, knowing that one day heaven will move itself towards us. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer over our church, that you would reveal to us in a miraculous way for this season, in this week, who our Katie is where we should be taking heaven, where we should be taking your love and help us to inch those environments and those people up the scale closer to heaven. This is our job. Let us welcome the purpose and the joy that comes with it. Send the Holy Spirit because we know it'll be difficult. We're sinners. There's so much darkness in our own lives. Let the light that shines be brighter than that. In fact, in our weakness, let your grace prevail and let the world see it. Protect this church, send this church, use this church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to pull out your communion right now, whether you're here in the room or at home. And I want to read to you Paul's words describing communion, and we'll partake of it together. It's appropriate for today. Paul said, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it, broke it into pieces, and said, This is my body, which is given for you do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup's the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me, as often as you drink it. And then check this verse out. This is what he says. He says, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Or in other words, every time we come together and we share the Lord's Supper, it should be a reminder for us of what our job is as we walk out the doors into our lives until the Lord comes again. We are announcing the Lord's death, bearing witness to the gospel. So eat the bread, drink the cup, take a moment to refocus and remember. Remember.